listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today on the show, we have David Levine. David is the founder of investment firm Odin River, which he started in 2015. Before that, he was the CIO at fintech startup Artivest. He also previously worked at Polson & Company, Canyon Capital, PAMCO, and Colony Capital. He received an MBA from Harvard Business School and a JD from Harvard Law School. He's also an angel investor, advisor, and active on Twitter under the account Paranoid Bull. Enjoy my conversation with David Levine. David, welcome to the podcast. Well, it's really a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited, you know, for you on this journey, and it's just great to to kind of be here um, and be a part of the of the early days of of what I think is an important podcast. So, thank you for inviting me. Thanks, David. Really appreciate having you on. So, the first thing I like to start out with. For guests, and of course, you're the first guest here, so I really appreciate that you coming on. Is going back to 2008, global financial crisis. You know, we had the SNL crisis, we had collapse of LTCM, we've had you know different hiccups along the way, but nothing like kind of labeled the GFC global financial crisis. So take us back to what you were doing in 2008 professionally. And if it changed the way you think about the financial system. Sure. And I'll, I'll actually back up a step, you know, before that, um, you know, by way of background, I'd kind of been, you know, in and out in, in finance, you know, for my entire career, which began really, you know, at the pinnacle of the, of the dot com bubble. Um, you know, so I, I kind of started in finance doing tech M&A in the bubble um, and <clears throat> Wall Street and go-go days. And then, you know, um, experienced the first collapse and then kind of leading up to 08, um, you know, I, I'd been in private equity and I, I started to see some of the excesses of, of, you know, debt and lending. And I, you know, had, had some knowledge of history of cycles. Um, and I actually, um, started a blog in 2007 called Paranoid Bull. Um, I was in, uh, I, I had gone after private equity, kind of working in banking private equity. I'd gone back to school and I was doing a JD and an MBA at Harvard. And I started this blog basically while I was, I was kind of working, um, in, in, you know, in the summers, I'd, I'd spend my time kind of moving from the private equity world over to the hedge fund world. So I worked at the time at the biggest fund of hedge funds or one of the biggest called PAMCO. And I worked in, in distress because I was worried that the crisis was coming. Um, so I started this blog in 07. And I was blogging about, you know, the housing market and the mortgage market. Um, and I also, you know, had been spending my time while I was in school because I was doing the JD and the MBA um, at Harvard Law School. I was a research assistant and teaching assistant for a professor called Elizabeth Warren. Now, she was a bankruptcy professor. The reason I was her student was because I was interested in distress. I was worried that the markets were, were kind of going to collapse and I wanted to be prepared 
um, you know, with a background to, to kind of, you know, participate, you know, in, in investments on the other side of the collapse. Um, and through the work I was doing with her, you know, in the 06, 07, 08, really time frame, I got exposed to, you know, consumers, uh, individual people who are facing financial distress, people who are filing for bankruptcy. And I built this website where I'd read their stories. And so I kind of saw, you know, through that work, um, you know, the financial stress that, that individuals were having. And, you know, like I said, I had this blog where I was, I was kind of talking about the markets and I, I was worried about, um, you know, the mortgage market and the CDS market and that sort of thing. You know, very luckily, like around 2007, I met, um, John Paulson. He was invited to Harvard Business School where I was, I was a student. Um, and he started to kind of explain his subprime trade and it just struck me as, as, as brilliant. And, and he, you know, clearly had, had it very well figured out. Um, you know, it was interesting to me back then that, you know, by 07, it was pretty clear, you know, that the mortgage market was, was in real trouble. The housing market had turned. And, you know, it was such a big market. Um, you know, it seemed pretty clear to me that we were going to have, you know, some kind of real, real collapse. Um, you know, and so, so I, I ended up, you know, through 2008, I, I worked at, at, at a big hedge fund, you know, while I was still in school called Canyon, which is probably the biggest hedge fund on the West Coast. Um, they're headquartered in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, so I was working there kind of thinking, okay, well, there's going to be, you know, this distress cycle. They're, they're quite good at distressed investing. Um, but the, the 2008 class was just so intense, as you mentioned that, um, you know, I ended up, um, instead of, you know, joining Canyon after, after graduating, um, you know, from Harvard Law in 2009, Harvard Business School in 2009, I ended up working for John Paulson. So basically in 08, in this, while it was all going down, the, the big collapse, um, you know, I ended up interviewing, you know, with, with John, um, and his team at Paulson and Company, um, and kind of actually you know, getting a, a job offer to join them, um, on the other side of the collapse. Um, you know, so, so my background having, you know, I, I'd say anticipated it, not obviously as well as others, but anticipated it somewhat prepared by, by, by doing a JD and MBA and kind of focusing on distress prepared me well to, to join Paulson and Company's investment team, which I did, um, you know, kind of, you know, following 08. So, all of that, I'd say, informed my perspective about, um, you know, both the leading up to 08, what it was, and then, you know, kind of the, the time afterward. Um, so, I, you know, because I was so intensely focused on it, like I wrote, I, I wrote my, you know, my thesis in, in my JD MBA program about, you know, how, um, the credit rating agencies really helped to cause the crisis. Um, as I mentioned, you know, I kind of went to work at Paulson and Company afterwards and, had been mm-hmm. focused on it a lot. So, so I'd say to answer your question directly, I definitely informed my perspective about, um, you know, market cycles. Um, I'd say it definitely changed my, you know, my kind of way of thinking about markets. Um, and, um, yeah, it's just, it's wild that we're a decade, you know, more than a decade later. And it seems like most people have forgotten that it happened. Um, which to me is just, it's it's really weird, and that and that leads me into you know the next topic, which is you have this concept of cycles matter, and it seems plain as day. It seems um, you know Howard Marks has written a book about you know cycles recently. You know he's talked in some of his memos. There are a few other people who have who have talked about this, but you've really you know done some work here, and you know based on your background as you just described, are, are kind of in a great place to be able to understand it. So as far as 
you know, what are you, what's your thinking around why there's this complacency out there? I mean, do, do investors really believe that, you know, it's, it is really different this time based on technology and all these other things they cite? Or is it a case of kind of the dance as long as the music is playing and, and we'll be able to get out just in time? Or what's your thinking around that? Yes, yeah, so there's a few reasons. Um, you know, why I think people are so complacent. I think that, you know, there's kind of like one, one of the key things, um, you know, that I believe is that, um, you know, that there's, there's certain myths that, that exist. And, and when people believe in these myths, you know, that some of the myths can be true, but, but a lot of times people believe in these untrue myths, like, like back in the last cycle was like, there was a myth that, oh, housing can't all go, housing prices can't all fall at the same time. Right. And, and that was like kind of the underlying assumption in these, in these CDOs and things. And that was really wrong. Um, so there's a myth right now, which is very compelling, which I call the myth of the infallible central banks. And what that myth means is that people say these things that are really convincing, right? So, so the former CEO of Goldman Sachs was tweeting a couple of weeks ago and he says, don't fight the Fed. You know, when the Fed is easing, you know, markets go up. And so there's this, these statements of don't fight the Fed, don't fight the ECB, don't fight the DOJ. And these statements are, are kind of, you know, they're, they're very compelling because in some ways they've obviously been, you know, important and, and to, to, to kind of be aware of that, um, you know, probably saved a lot of, you know, pain and suffering. If you, if you, you know, were fighting the Fed and the ECB and the BOJ forever, you, you know, you've been losing. Um, so there's some compelling kind of truthiness behind this idea of don't fight the Fed, don't fight the, the central banks. But people take it too far, meaning they believe these central banks are fallible. Now, my view is that this belief that central banks are infallible underlies a lot of the complacency because I think that people are saying to themselves or, or not even just to themselves, they say this anytime most people when you speak to them, they say, oh, yes, but don't worry, they will something. They'll, they'll, they'll print or they'll do QE or, or somehow they'll, they'll save the day, you know, the, the central banks. And of course, there's some truth to that, right? Like the, the, you know, Fed resumed QE last week. Um, right. they're not calling it QE, but it is. Um, they're expanding their balance sheet to buy treasury securities, um, due to imbalance in the treasury market, which to me is terrifying. Um, but, you know, of course, they're going to try to do things. Now, my, my own view is that you can't control risk forever and that cycles do matter. Like, I, it would be great if cycles didn't matter. Like, it would be great if, you know, that, <laughs> quite optimistic like in the very long run like i'm super optimistic about like for instance this podcast is great it's about transparency and sharing ideas i believe very much in things like modernizing our electric grid and and that we're going to actually do things to address climate change like i'm a big big believer in things like wellness for the individual and the earth and, and stuff like that so i'm a massive optimist but cycles matter and we mispriced risk for a decade and and you know risk exists and you know, it'd be great if, if, if it didn't, it'd be great if cycles didn't matter. It'd be great if, if, you know, there was no more risk in the world, but there is. And, and not only that risk is increasing by the day and political risk is off the charts. We see it every day. You know, the president of the United States is under an impeachment inquiry. We have like a war breaking out in the Middle East. You know, we have a, an ongoing trade conflict with the biggest, two most important trade partners in the world while PMIs globally are rolling off a cliff. Europe's in a recession. China's slowing down. Like it hasn't in, you know, more, maybe I think it's 20 years, the latest GDP numbers, you know, <clears throat> South Korea, 20% negative year over year growth. I can go on and on about the, the fundamentals. Um, so, you know, the thing is this, I think that the reason why people are complacent, one of the main reasons is this myth of the infallible central bank. They think that the central banks can stop it. I'll say one other thing and then I'll, I'll kind of let you chime back in, which is that 
I think that the kind of like levered long short vol trade has been the winning trade for a long time. And so there's also this kind of like survivorship bias, right? So like if you're short, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm that short. I've been that short a little while. It's a little uncomfortable to be net short, right? Like when it, when a market's going up and up and up and up, like 2017, the S&P 500 had a sharp ratio, of, you know, oh, almost four. You know, so if you have, right. if, you're, if you're short a market that's going up, 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 up like that, it's very hard to, to navigate. Unfortunately, I'm, I've been doing okay, but I think that most people who are kind of like short, vol, levered, long, who have believed, you know, that, that nothing's, nothing bad is going to happen and that everything's going to be okay and that the markets will go up forever and the cycles don't matter. They, they've actually kind of, quote unquote done well, especially funny, funny enough, like if you start on January 1st through today in 2019, they're quote unquote doing well. Although if you back up, you know, maybe a couple months and, and you kind of instead pick an arbitrary date like November 5th or something, like maybe they're not doing as well. But it's all sorts of like behavioral things like that, where it's like, you know, the last, you know, last 10 months are, are, are like up, you know, but the last right. 12 months are flat, but it doesn't matter because people are so focused on, on annual compensation and things like, you know, monthly calendaring and things. So there's a bunch of reasons, I think. Um, you know, I could probably talk for an hour about the reasons, but those are some of the reasons. Right. And the news cycle is, is just so fast nowadays where there's just constant stream of news coming out and investors reacting to every little thing, which, you know, historically we've had, but I think it's just magnified now. And, you know, going back to what you said about the balance sheet, now there's this narrative and talk out there about, okay, is this QE? Is this not QE? What is this? And I think, yeah, as many have said, that's kind of the wrong question. I mean, they're, the bottom line is they're, they're increasing the balance sheet. And why are they doing that? Well, that's it, it's not normal. Something is wrong there. Yeah. And um, I think, just to jump in on that point, this is yeah. a really simple thing to ask anyone who says, um, people say things like, oh, well, this is normal. And they'll say, well, this is because of like reserve requirements or something like that. And the question is, okay, so what happened? What changed about reserve requirements in the middle of September? And what changed about reserve requirements last week? The answer to that is obviously nothing, right? Mm-hmm. What's changed is that the supply demand imbalances in the treasury market are so extreme that they've literally stopped functioning overnight. Overnight money stopped working. You get eight percent interest rates overnight in the United States because of imbalances in supply and demand. You have so much imbalance in in supply and demand of treasury issuance that the Fed literally has to step in and start buying, you know, tens of billions of dollars of, of treasuries because nobody else wants to buy them. So that's mm-hmm. that's not that's not like oh, well, now we have some new regulation. It's like the there's supply, there's not demand. There's not enough demand for quote-unquote risk-free assets. And what does that mean? I mean, how risk-free are they? And nobody wants to own them, right? So, right, exactly. And before the crisis, the balance sheet grew to about $800 billion, call it. And after, you know, we, we actually got up to a peak around $4.5 trillion. And so people are talking about now that, okay, this recent operation is basically similar to what they were doing before the crisis, going in and buying. And obviously there's been some issues with interest on excess reserve as far as controlling short-term rates. So now they're going back to, you know, using some other tools of what they did before the crisis. But originally the idea was it was going to be like watching paint dry, right? And kind of start rolling off this, uh, this balance sheet. And then, and then all of a sudden it was just a a quick U-turn 
And what, and what some people, contrarians, have been saying for all along is that they're not going to be able to kind of unwind it the way they, they discussed. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, there's, there's a few different elements of what you're saying. One is that obviously, you know, let's back up a step, right? So Bernanke, when he began all this, saw it as temporary. It was very intentionally meant to be temporary because he knew it was an intentional distortion of the yield curve. Like if you, if you read Bernanke's speeches, his entire goal was to suppress term premia and to stimulate the prices of assets Meaning the stock market so that the economy will recover. Right. It's not, there's, there's all these strange theories out there. Like people say things like, oh, well, QE and asset purchases didn't influence the price of debt or something. People say things like, oh, well, yields are down because of technology or something like that. It's like, no, literally <laughs> they, they tried to, to, to suppress term premium, increase the price of assets and it worked. Right. So it's like QE was like supposed to be, we're going to use a few trillion dollars to like pump up asset prices because we think that'll stimulate the economy. And it, and it did do what it meant to do. Mm-hmm. The problem was it was supposed to be temporary, number one. And then number two, it was supposed to maybe create some, you know, like uh, escape velocity, I think was a term they used, like escape velocity and the momentum of the economy or something. And it failed at those two things, right, in, in the United States. Now, in Europe, it kind of failed at almost everything except for distorting the, the, the credit markets to the point where you've got like a trillion of, or at least as of, you know, six weeks ago, you had a trillion of, negatively yielding corporate bonds, the entire banking system is collapsing and the economy has like been basically bouncing around on the verge of recession. I guess I guess you've had job growth. That is something that you have had in, in, in Europe. So there's been some stuff that isn't horrible. Um, but meanwhile we've got like massive, you know, record wealth inequality around the world. Uh, banking system in, in Europe and Japan are broken. And yeah, they're stuck. I mean the, the Fed, you know, quantitative tightening isn't a thing. It's, it's, it's really just like kind of reversing the temporary measures that were supposed to be temporary. It's not, it's not quantitative tightening. It, it should be called returning to normal, but they right. weren't able to do it. And now, now it's not even, they're not even not able to do it. They have to start expanding the balance sheet again because liquidity conditions are so bad that overnight money went to 8% just like a month ago. And people are acting like, Oh, don't worry. Everything's going to be fine because Donald Trump, who's under, you know, impeachment investigation, by half a country is going to magically do a magic trade deal with, with China. And it's going to save the day. Like that's like the consensus narrative is something like, Oh, don't worry. You know, um, there'll be a trade deal and then the fed will, will do something. And, and so everything's going to be fine and, and cycles don't matter anymore or something, which to me doesn't make much sense at all. Exactly. Now, as far as this new, or more recent narrative of calling QE just an asset swap. So basically a swap for reserves when they get treasuries. So it's been, you know, widely documented and there's a lot of information out there to read about the mechanics of QE. But, you know, bottom line is they create digital, you know, USD in a computer, computerized dollars and then buy treasuries on the open market, which is, which of course, you know, pushes down yields. Now, you know, these, these primary dealers and these banks are credited with, you know, US dollar called reserves. Now the question is, okay, they can be lent out at 9x leverage through fractional reserve banking, or they can be kind of lent out and, and move through the economy, which they haven't, you know, done as much. And they've been buying back stock and different things, but not investing in property, plant and equipment. But what do you say to someone who says, oh, well, this is just an asset swap? Um, 
you know, what would you say to that? I mean, every purchase of anything is an asset. So it's like, if I buy your hat off of your head and I give you like a piece of paper that has a picture of, you know, a president on it, I just swapped assets with you. So it's like, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, buying and selling things is uh, swapping assets. That's literally what it is. It's like the thing yeah. that, that that's like the, the people jargonize it, right? So they're like, oh, it's reserve asset swap, blah, blah, like try to make it complicated. It's really not that complicated, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Fed is buying stuff because nobody else wants to buy it. Like what's worse about this QE, which call it whatever you want, it's QE, you know, it's <laughs> federal, like the Fed buying um you know, kind of newly created treasury issuance because nobody else wants to buy it. So that's, you know, quantitative easing. Yeah. Uh, but like, you know, I think that if you want to distinguish this QE from recent historic QE, this QE is actually worse, <clears throat> meaning that it's not going to, in my opinion, likely do as much to help quote unquote manipulate. <laughs> I, I hate to use the word help. Um, it's not going to do as much to influence the prices of assets because this is a reactionary QE. This is actually worse. It's actually like not as going to be as stimulative as the other QE. Meaning when you, when you have kind of like a, a normal balanced market, quote unquote, you know, go back to 11, 12, 13, whatever, when QE was going on, you, when you, when you do QE, when you, when you go out and buy stuff, you go out and buy, you know, mortgage, you know, um, you know, mortgage, um, instruments or treasuries in the open market, what you're doing is you're, you're kind of like changing the supply demand balance because you have normal market participants who are like buying stuff for a price. And then you're kind of going in and you're going to like increase the demand for that thing. And so you're going to kind of drive up the price or drive down the yield. And that actually distorts the markets, which is the goal. So you like drive down the yields and, and then it kind of like force yield chasing, which is the entire point of QE in asset purchase programs. So you distort the markets intentionally. But because you're changing the supply demand imbalance, sorry, the supply demand imbalance, what's going on now is actually not um, going to be a stimulative because what's happening is is that there's literally not enough demand. So you're not like the QE, the balance sheet expansion now is almost like kind of like putting your finger in a, in, in like a hole of, of a dam that's about to break because mm-hmm. there's so much treasury issuance that nobody wants to buy it because who wants to own treasuries when there's like a glut, like record amounts of treasuries being printed constantly. So what you're doing now, it's almost like a defensive QE, whereas before it was like an offensive QE. So in many ways, this is worse. You know, I think it's it's worse because it's a sign of of like, you know, the breaking down of the system, like a very fundamentals, like overnight money and treasuries, like the 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 the, the, the like basic, like <clears throat> you know, kind of fundamentals of of banking and lending are breaking down to the point the Fed has to step in. Um, that's not, it's actually kind of a worse type of QE because it's a defense against a failing market. Whereas before the QE was kind of like, you know, playing offense. Let's, let's like, let's, let's manipulate the, the financial markets in a way and like hope that good things happen. And, and like, you know, to Bernanke's credit, like it did work in the sense the stock market went up and the economy did recover. So like, you know, the, the, the offensive QE in the United States at least, you know, achieved some of the stated intent. Now, Obviously, there were many side effects, you know, that that, that came um, with that stated intent, and all sorts of, you know, negative things came out of it, um, you know. But I do think that it's important to kind of point out, I think, the difference between this QE, you know, which is a little bit more of a, I'll call it, defensive QE, and that QE, which was offensive. 
Yeah, and I think everyone or most people agree that, you know, the stimulus was was needed swift and fast, obviously, at the time. But most people would be able to say it was a success if the balance sheet were was able to be, you know, unwound and kind of put back <laughs> and left where it was at the time. But we're still at these emergency levels of stimulus when supposedly the economy is doing so great. And obviously, as you mentioned, well, at least in the U.S., the way the Fed, the Fed measures unemployment, it's where they want it. We haven't had the wage growth. Um, and then inflation is where they want it. Although, you know, there's some issues there of, of how they measure it as far as food, healthcare, other things, student loans have, have kind of gone through the roof. So that kind of leads into, you know, you mentioned Elizabeth Warren and, you know, now there's a lot of talk of kind of quote MMT or kind of a, uh, a fiscal stimulus plan, you know, whether it's UBI or whatever it is, it, it would seem to make sense to put forth a plan to $3 trillion plan or whatever, whatever it comes out to be, instead of doubling the balance sheet, let's say the 8 trillion, maybe there's a fiscal stimulus. And we've had you know, some comparables. You could look at cash for clunkers. You could look at uh, George W. Bush gave everyone, it was like a $200 check at the time. You know, can you speak to to that of, of of what you think might be coming down the pike? Yeah, sure. And I, I just want to make something very clear. Like there, even though the quote unquote QE was effective in a way, it, it stimulated the economy in a way. There's also a lot of like really bad side effects. And I, I, so I don't I don't want to like overlook the fact that you know manipulating asset prices and suppressing you know the price of risk has now unfortunately put us in a situation where you know, the entire world is complacent, long risk, and, you know, the markets across both equities and credit have significant downside. Pension funds, insurance companies, retirees, and others have been forced to chase junk and own junk by, due to the, the quantitative easing and, and kind of market manipulation, um, that, that did have the, you know, like I said, success of, of increasing the prices of assets. Um, let's not put people in a, in a situation where they're long a lot of risk, there's really nowhere to hide. And, and people have been forced to chase all sorts of yield. And, you know, that's that's true globally, you know, and, and you know, the Japanese banking system, European banking system are, are far worse than ours. Um, you know, Japanese pensioners have, you know, have been, been kind of the biggest, you know, maybe of all yield chasers um, in terms of their exposure to things like our CLO market and stuff like that. <clears throat> Not to mention, you know, companies like SoftBank, which are, are, are long, you know, a bunch of the unicorn companies. Um, so, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, be unclear that I think, you know, even though it was quote unquote successful, there's a lot of really negative side effects. And probably the most obvious side effect, in my opinion, is this um, increased wealth inequality. <clears throat> so I have this thing sometimes when I say on on my paranoid Twitter account where I'll say, you know, QE and easy money is socialism for the rich, meaning when you reduce interest rates to zero and you increase the price of assets, asset owners get wealthier. And so if when you do that for a long time, due to Warren Buffett's what does he call it, like the eighth wonder or ninth wonder of the universe, the magic right. compounding, what happens is the wealthy, when you compound at a higher and higher rate, and so then you get wealthier and wealthier, and if you don't own those assets, like you're a normal kind of like middle class, working class individual, and you don't participate in that, you actually get <clears throat> poor on a relative basis. Now, then people will say, well, oh, goods and service inflation hasn't been so high. Well, this is where, like, the details matter. So health costs have gone off <clears throat> the charts. So have education costs. So have housing costs. So things that matter to people, right, have experienced significant inflation, especially education, 
and healthcare. Housing's out of reach for like a generation. You know, there's plenty of like millennial generation Z who, you know, can't buy a house. If you're in a city like San Francisco, good luck. Like there's zero chance you're going to own a house. California, the entire state is out of reach for a generation of people due to this, this kind of distortive, um, policy. So, so the quote unquote socialism for the rich, meaning the manipulation of, of asset prices, you know, by, by intent by central banks because they, they want to stimulate the economy. Um, has these side effects and the side effects are populism, you know, or kind of like a, 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 there's all sorts of different kinds of populism, but economic populism, which I think, you know, President Trump rode that wave, um, you know, many ways, but that's one of the major ways he rode to beat the Republican Party and, and to win the election in, in the swing states. Now that same momentum of economic populism is, is inspiring, um, you know, Elizabeth Warren's campaign. Um, Bernie Sanders has a lot, a lot of support. Uh, especially among the youth, but she, she has really broad-based support um, for a sort of economic populism. Now, what's going to come down the pike from economic populism? You know, I think there's a variety of different things that could come. You know, I think that things have been proposed like wealth tax, break up the, the big tech companies, um, and then you're talking about fiscal stimulus. Now, <clears throat> the term MMT, um, you know, is, is, is kind of this idea of this quote-unquote modern monetary theory, which is, you know, people can Google and read about it, but it's this idea that, you know, Governments can print as much as they want because it doesn't matter because they, you know, can can always you know, basically buy their own debt or buy any, um, any basically finance any of the of the expenditures that they have in their economy because you can just like, click a button like you were saying earlier and print money, create money out of scratch, um, to finance it. Now the problem with MMT is that it ignores the the basic fundamentals of of the way you know countries, companies, and 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 the world operates, meaning that. You know, in order to, to buy things, if you don't have the money, you need to borrow the money from others. They, they lend you the money. And if you pretend like there's not an obligation that's created when you print, print money, well, then you could just print infinite money. That kind of takes you down the Zimbabwe route. So there's got to be some limit on the, on the amount of money that you print. Um, so I think, you know, what, what, what people try to kind of point to is this idea of inflation. Okay. We're going to, we're going to like make sure we don't, we don't print too much so we get into an inflationary environment and then, and then MMT has this like strange idea, which is so what will happen is while we're, we're, we're like printing all this money to like finance whatever projects we want. And, and the government, by the way, is going to be the one financing them, which is horribly inefficient. Look at, you know, 2008, um, some of the stimulus packages put in by the Obama administration were well intended. But many of those companies went bankrupt because governments aren't very good at picking winners. So you can have a government spending trillions of, of, of dollars in inefficient fashion, most likely. And, and somehow what, what the theory of MMT is is that somehow what will happen is that once inflation starts, then then the regulators will adjust taxes. They'll they'll change the tax rate and they'll they'll adjust other regulatory policies to kind of like slow down inflation rather than having you know the Fed um, you know adjust the interest rates, which has been interesting, right? Um, which is to me it, it's absolutely insane. Like I think it's totally crazy to think that. We're going to have trillions of dollars being spent in the economy in a way that's going to be inflationary, but then somehow we're going to get like Congress to be like, hey, um, like, could you imagine like Nancy Pelosi, Donald Trump, and like the Republicans in the Senate saying, hey guys, I know what we, we should do. We should raise taxes because inflation's too high. Like it's, it's a totally insane idea that is a, one of the key fundamental building blocks to MMT theory, meaning that you can have these like magical regulators that will, that will like be able to kind of like stave off inflation or something. Um, so unfortunately, I think to answer your question about what I think is coming down the pike, I think that 
it seems very likely we're already in, we're definitely in a global slowdown. Um, and many of the countries in the world are in a recession. I don't know about the United States. We'll see. Um, you know, I think we're, you know, I think the cycle started turning in 2018. I think 2019 has been nothing but an extension of the cycle started that began last year. So I think, you know, markets are, are long overdue, um, you know, for much more significant correction than what began last year. I think it should occur and, and likely will meeting across equity and credit markets. And, you know, if that happens, meaning the markets are, are down a lot and we're in some sort of, you know, economic slowdown, it seems more likely that as things get worse in the markets, that it's more likely that um, President Trump will lose an election because if the president, you know, is, is kind of manning the ship while the markets are going down, the economy is doing poorly, they're more vulnerable. Um, and, and so I think as things get worse in the markets, it's more likely that, um, you know, Senator Warren wins and, and, you know, her, her policies um, likely will, you know, some of them, especially things like baking up, you know, breaking up big tech and, and other things, you know, the, they'll probably, you know, reduce the margins of certain of the existing large companies, um, which wouldn't be good for their stock prices. So, you know, I think that it's possible, quite probable that um, if that starts to happen, then, the, you know, plus most people on Wall Street don't like her for some reason, I think because, you know, she's honest about things like wealth inequality. Um, but, you know, it's likely that the markets could go down further. Um, and then in that environment, you know, I think the, the, the danger of MMT, so, so let's say that you know, President Warren wins, I think that many people then would be in support of, to your point, this fiscal stimulus, which I, I you know, look, I think fiscal stimulus can be good, especially if it's done in a good way. Things like infrastructure, I think, are great. Let's modernize our infrastructure. I think it's important, right? So I'm... You know, and I'm a big fan of, of doing things to address climate change. So I think there are smart things can be done, especially for the middle class, especially for infrastructure, um, that can be done with fiscal stimulus. I think the danger is that, you know, if the quote unquote MMT radical crowd, um, you know, gets, gets, um, too much influence, what, what could happen is you could have, you know, a, a recessionary environment with markets down and you could have too much MMT stimulus, which could cause it stagflation. So you could have, Kind of an economic contraction, markets down and inflation, which would absolutely crush, um, bond markets, you know, and so mm-hmm. I, I think that that would be, I think that's, I think it's possible that we end up in that sort of scenario. Um, you meaning that, you know, both equity markets and bond markets are down for various reasons, including, you know, this notion that we could, you know, approach a stagflationary environment a couple of years from now. And, and in that type of scenario, in the stagflation scenario, obviously it's tepid economic growth with inflation, which usually we, we have, you know, rates rising and, and economic growth in an inflationary kind of environment. So in that scenario, let's say inflation is up and economic activity is still down. And do you see rates you know, rising in that scenario, and then maybe what if the Fed wants to double the balance sheet and just try to keep rate, you know, rates pegged down further? Well, would they be able to? Yeah, this is, this is the issue. I mean, I think that if you're in an inflationary environment, then then you know the long end of the, the yield curve is going to go up. Bonds are going to sell off. I mean, it's just kind mm-hmm. of the, the nature of things is that you know bond markets will, will will sell off and rates will go up. And you know, I don't think that it would make any sense. You know, it'd be it would be like super it would be like a really extreme and probably like non-defendable position that it would mm-hmm. be almost impossible to get to manifest, which would be to kind of say, okay, well, 
let's go out and buy, you know, all this government debt because the, the interest rates are going up because, because inflation is happening, which mm-hmm. is what we, we wanted to do. It was kind of like what we wanted to have happen that the whole time when we were doing the stimulus, like the whole time, <laughs> right. let's get inflation up. It, and for them to then say, well, let's go force rates down. I think it would be pretty hard to even like logically defend that position, much less to implement it with any kind of like, you know, extreme. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the, the issue of what some people bring up is the interest on the national debt itself. And, and you know, depending how fat, fast you know, it's rise. You know what you just said? You said debt matters. Mm-hmm. You said ultimately when you borrow, you have to pay it back. Right. And that's just the nature of things. It's just the fundamental building blocks of finance, right? And so it's just because it's a government, like, <laughs> does that mean that risk doesn't exist or that, like, you never have to pay your obligations? But no. I mean, of course you do at some point in the future. And that point in the future is coming up, right? And so that's, that's the unfortunate reality, right? And so to say, well, oh, it's really unfortunate that, you know, the markets and our creditors no longer think that, you know, they're willing to accept a, a 3% interest for 30 years, which is insane. But I don't know anyone would do that, but they, they do now because of all sorts of distortionary things that have been happening in the markets. But if we're in an inflationary environment, why would any creditor accept 3% for 30 years? Of course they won't, right? right? It's, it's just the nature of things, right? So it's like, you know, I, I, I wish it wasn't the case that they, in 2016, made the horrible decision to not let us have a normal credit cycle. Like, I really wish there was a chance we could have had, like, a real credit cycle, and then we could have avoided a lot of this stuff. But, you know, they didn't want to. They wanted to, right. to keep it contained. And so this is systemic risk. Like what we're talking about now is political risk. This is systemic risk. Like MMT creating inflation that breaks the bond market is political risk. Like these are the sorts of systemic risks that happen when you create trillions of dollars of distortions. And right. And in, 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 in 2016, it's arguable. You know, maybe we had a recession, but it wasn't measured as one. Um, <laughs> what happened is it started to turn and they didn't want, they didn't, you know, the powers that be didn't want to have a normal credit cycle. You know, they, they intervened. They, that's when the ECB went negative. That's when the BOJ flattened the 10 year to zero. The Fed paused, even though the Fed shouldn't have paused. They didn't want to have a credit cycle, you know, and they didn't want to have a, you know, a, a proper cleansing. And so they intervened and, and now here's where we are, you know, those are the results. Right. So I'd like to wrap up with, you, know, you touched on a little bit of that type of scenario where the impetus for, for rates actually rise. I think a lot of people look at Japan and, um, you know, there, there was a great slide I saw which showed you know, talking about demographics and European you know, equity market had a strong run and then peaked, never recovered since. You had, you know, Japan equity market, you know, peaked in 8990, hasn't recovered. And you have you know, the JGB buying up, um, obviously ETFs and equities, but a large portion of, of, of their own government debt. Now it hasn't affected the currency, maybe of what some people thought it would. Do you think there's, do you think that could ever be a scenario here in the U.S.? Obviously we have much better demographics than Japan and different cultural kind of values as far as spending way more money in a consumption economy, but you know, do you, do you see the Fed trying to go down that road of buying up like 70, 80% of a, of treasuries? 
Outstanding. First of all, that's illegal. And the only way that that could ever become legal would be if the Congress approved it. And I don't know why they would. Um, as far as equities. Yeah, equities or, I mean, I think, I think buying, buy, well, let's, so there's, there's certain things that the Fed can do and certain things the Fed can't do. There are limits on what the Fed can do. And in 2008, the Fed needed permission from Congress to do extraordinary things. Last year in 2018, Janet Yellen said she was concerned about the lack of macroprudential, quote unquote macroprudential, meaning, you know, tools that the Fed can use, macroprudential tools to deal with systemic risk. So if we're in a scenario where things are breaking down, the Fed likely will need to go to Congress for approval to do things like, say, buy equities or buy, you know, mm-hmm. other things. Similar um, to TARP. <laughs> correct. So I don't, <laughs> I don't know how easy it will be for the Fed to get that. But, you know, I think that the, you know, the demographic point is a very important point, right? The U.S. economy um, is different in many ways, including the fact we have population growth. And, you know, if you look at the momentum behind, you know, I'll call it like the support of more loose immigration policies, which, you know, it used to be the case that the president of the United States was a Democrat and he was, you know, in favor of a lot of kind of strict policies to, you know, export or sorry to to um track down illegal immigrants and and to do things that were tough on on immigration. You know, Biden is catching flack for that now because that used to be the the mainstream position of one of the political parties. That is not meaning the tailwinds for population growth are only going to increase in in time as um you know we have more immigration. So we have natural population growth Plus, we're going to have increased immigration. So the U.S. is not – Japan is, is declining population, basically. So does China now, roughly. Um, so we're demographically advantaged, not to mention, to your point, you know, we're very much about leverage and spending around here. Like, we're 70%, you know, plus kind of consumption economy, and that's not slowing down anytime soon. So, you know, especially if we're talking about adding MMT to the <laughs> equation. Like, if anything, it's, it's moving in the right of, you know, kind of more spending – Kind of more, but we're going to wipe out, we're going to wipe out student loan debt and let people borrow more and then kind of spend more, you know, I, so, you know, plus population growth. So it's just a very different picture than Japan, which is a saver economy, shrinking population, um, you know, very conservative in, in, in all sorts of ways, um, demographically challenged, um, you know, the same with Western Europe. So it's not, it's just not the same. You know, I, I don't think we're similar. Um, and so, therefore, I don't think you know. And our markets reflect that, right? So, our markets have been, you know, performing those markets. And you know, unfortunately, like, you know, so, so the I'll, I'll land on a positive note for, on this point. And then, if this we have one more question, I'm glad to take it. But you know, that <laughs> the good thing about America is our values are great, and the good thing in America is that we have a lot of great tailwinds. And the good thing about America is that we have a lot of strong competitive positions that aren't going away. So, even though it's probable that we're going to have a kind of market collapse. It could be worse than 08 in many ways. In some ways it already is from a political perspective. Um, you know, on the other side of that, we have some very strong things in our favor, you know, entrepreneurship, uh, strong demographics, we're leading in innovation around healthcare technology. And hopefully soon we could be leading around things like infrastructure and, you know, clean, clean, clean energy and things like that. We're doing okay in that we could be doing better. Um, so I'm optimistic that we can recover on the other side and grow again. Uh, we're going to be tough for a while. Yeah, no, I think it makes a lot of sense. That's one thing I admire about your work as far as, you know, being optimistic for the future. And you've obviously worked in fintech and 
at Artivest and you've, you've, you're, you advise various startups and done some angel investing. So I think you, you bring that level headedness where you, you, you're aware of all these risks out there, but you still, you know, you're obviously optimistic about the future. Um, and, you know, in the American economy in the long term. Now, the other point I'll bring up as well is just the, the nuance that's really needed in these type of discussions. And obviously in the past, you've talked about the German court ruling as far as whether their asset purchases by the central bank was even legal. Yeah. And then you brought up here, you know, with the Fed, as far as what they did with TARP and obviously needing Congress and the issues there, you know, how fast will they even be able to come together to put together a plan? So I think there, there's a lot of nuance that, that I think people will really appreciate when they go through your backlog of, of analysis. Well, thank you. Yeah, and I'll just, just to, to kind of put a finer point on the on the last thing you're mentioning i think that what what you just described is just that there are bringing it back to okay what's the mispricing this cycle it's government debt and it's mispricing the fact that central banks have limits and it's assuming that they don't have limits when they do you know we just mentioned too you know the the, the fed had limits in 08 and they need congressional approval and then to your point yeah the ecb as you mentioned um currently has a, a german constitutional court ruling that's outstanding that has not yet determined whether or not it's ever been legal, the QE that they've been doing. So I think those legal and political limits, we see the political limits, you know, more clearly, you know, when you have the, the president of the United States threatening the Fed chair um, to fire him and that sort of thing, that those are kind of political limits. And, and you see similar things with the former ECB chairs now kind of criticizing Draghi's most recent actions. And so there's political limits, um, you know, to these, to these actors, but there's also legal limits. And so that's, it's yeah, it's your point is a nuance, but it's also just it's just true. You know, there are limits to to what governments can do, limits to what central bankers can do, and and that's why <laughs> that's why risk exists. That's why, you know, systemic kind of systematic um type events are um you know, they happen. They happen in 08, and I think it's in a way we're kind of in the midst of one now in our political system, you know, and, and how that will translate into the financial system I think we'll see in the next, you know, year or so. Well, thanks so much, David. And why don't you let everyone know where where we can find your work and, and maybe get in touch with you? So I have a Twitter account, Paranoid Bull, um, and people seem to like that. I um, am reachable anytime, dal at odinriver.com if you feel like emailing me. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I send out a newsletter at odinriver.com from time to time. So, um, yeah, it's, it's enjoyable to be on. And uh, – and wish you a ton of luck. I think it's really meaningful that the topic you've chosen to make this podcast about and uh, really appreciate you inviting me on. I think it's, it's going to be a real success and uh, wish you, wish you all the best with it. And uh, please let me know if there's ways I can be helpful. Thanks so much, David. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at jellydonutpod, or you can contact us via email at jellydonutpodcast 
at protonmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.